Today on a beautiful Sunday, a few days later than anticipated, we have your week in sports cars with our awesome friend Graham Goodwin. He, the editor of DailySportsCar.com, also a face and voice you'll be very familiar with from a wide variety of European sports car broadcasts. I'm Marshall Pruitt, maybe a little bit less of a familiar face. I do a little bit of broadcasting, not a whole ton though. It's been a little while. Been home all year for the most part, Graham, but we do have a lot of questions that we were hoping to get done and out the door before Petit Le Mans. Uh, Haven't exactly made that happen, unfortunately. So let's say a big thank you to the Justice Brothers, Cooper Tires, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And get rolling with our show, my friend. So as the official selector of which of the four categories we work from, where shall we start first? I'm going to start with a question we haven't got, and that uh, is brought to us because of this money delay, uh, MP. And I'm going to ask this one to you. We're going to start with him, sir. Um, watched much of particular one. What the hell was all that about then? <laughs> that was a bizarre end to that race. Well, are we talking the accident between Ricky Taylor and Pippo Durrani yeah. or the yeah. what appeared to be grumpiness post-race between the two of them with Pippo at about two foot one yeah. and Ricky at about three times taller, yet Ricky looking as if head in hands, highly distraught, uh, emotionally spent. Meanwhile, Pippo was ready to take chunks out of his backside. There's, there's that, yes. Okay. There's certainly that. I mean, I mean, certainly. I, th- I think if we were to have chucked these questions out uh, a couple of days later, the question that certainly would have been asked is, what do we think about race controls? Uh, no fault call on that contact. I was perfectly fine with it. A hundred percent fine with it. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm happy with the outcome. I'm not saying that young Mr. Durrani and the Action Express team would be, should be, or are the least bit happy. But this was not a completely ignorant passing attempt by young Ricky Taylor, I would say. This is one of those, it's almost feels like victim blaming, Graham. So I'm trying to tread lightly (laughs) here. Pippo made the mistake of leaving the door open enough entering into, I believe it's turn six, and that was enough for Ricky to say, aha, you left it open, I'm going to try and go down inside. Appeared he got about halfway there, halfway along side Pippo, and I don't know what happened next, meaning Pippo saw that Ricky was diving for the inside, trying to take the lead, and then chose to steer right and turn into him, slash try and close the door, or if he was just simply unaware that he had the second-place car now trying to take first place. I don't know which of the two is what took place in Pippo's mind. Haven't had a chance to speak with him, but I do know that he had done a delightfully effective job many times prior leading into that corner to make sure not a glimpse of a hope of a glimmer of a wish was held by Ricky that there was enough room to try and make a pass. In this instance, he did. And for that, 
I cannot get too grumpy at Ricky for trying to take the lead with whatever it was, 10 minutes left, and Petit Le Mans. Had Ricky gotten to, what, Pippo's right rear tire, Graham? And that's when contact ensued and the bow spun off. I think there would absolutely be a penalty. Uh, I would say the fact that he got halfway along uh, the side of the Cadillac and, again, whether that was intent to turn and try and close the door slash knock him out of the potential of getting the lead or just true obliviousness and not knowing he was there one way or the other. Don't leave that door open. We're never having this conversation. And I don't think the Acura is strong enough to take the lead on outright pace. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. that for sure we absolutely needed traffic getting in the way, slowing things down, creating opportunities for the Acura to get there. I know, I believe Ricky or someone on his team uh, said they felt their car was the fastest in the field in the, the closing segment of the race. I did not see that whatsoever. I saw that it was fast in certain segments, but not enough to get by and then actually hold a lead. So even if Ricky had gotten through cleanly on Pippo here, I am still not convinced he would have been able to hold on to the lead. So the reason Pippo was so mad is just proof positive and evidence of what makes him so amazing in all of these passes that he pulls off Graham year after year, that kind of personality and aggressiveness that allows us to see these things taking place on the racetrack to the benefit of the various teams he's driven for. Well, there's a personality attached to that, right? (laughs) And that is for sure what we saw after the race. So, I mean, did anybody expect him to go up and and give Ricky a high five and say, ah, boy, that was fun? No. You want to rip the guy in half. Well, that's his on-track personality, just being its true self uh, in the paddock outside the car. So, yeah. Uh, I am fine, perfectly fine with race control and what they, uh, what they did not do. The fact being that had Pippo not opened the door, you would have never invited that. And the fact that Ricky got at least halfway along before it looked like Pippo kind of reacted, uh, hard to assign blame in a singular direction. Therefore you kind of look at it as offsetting penalties or offsetting fouls in the race moves on. Okay, let's move on ourselves and let's uh, move into questions about IMSA. Uh, I'm going to go first to our regular questioner, Jeff Barak, uh, who asks, is there any word about Penske being in IMSA next season? I guess with anything, MP. Zero that I've heard of, Jeff, was asking someone late last week about uh, a place where I thought Penske might have a place in next year's season. No, I don't don't even want to say what championship, but could they still be there in a capacity being paid to run a program and was told now even that seems a little bit too abstract. So nothing. Do not expect it at all, Jeff. If you are one of however many folks that were able to get to Petit Le Mans, great if you want to see this team run uh once or twice more well you're not going to have a chance at my home race here 
in Monterey, but I do believe we will have folks at Sebring. So that would be the place to see them uh, and their farewell. Other quick thing to mention here, Jeff, uh, I'm aware of what some of the current Acura Team Penske employees will be doing next year, and it would be in junior open-wheel racing in North America. Not in IndyCar. There could be some. Well, let me rephrase that. I expect more than half to be attached to something related to a Penske IndyCar program, but I also believe some of them will be attached to a junior open-wheel program. Nothing that I know of, though, leading us to believe Penske will have any presence in IMSA after I'm sorry after Sebring concludes on November 14th. There you go. Uh, these are the kind of questions we like. First time questioner, Sam Anadiotis. Hi, Sam. It says, hey, Marshall, long-time listener, first-time question submitter. Uh, any news on Spirit of Daytona Racing? Knows there are rumours of them getting a Master TPR for the 2020 season pre-COVID-19. Hasn't heard or read anything since that. Uh, he says he misses that 90 car out on track. And I'm presuming that Sam uh, is a he, but uh, if it's a she, my apologies. So you're very welcome, Sam. Indeed. Nothing that I'm aware of, Sam, of the Fleece family running anything in prototype anytime soon. There was the collision of Dyson Racing and Spirit of Daytona coming together in some form of Mazda DPI that was meant to gel at the end of 2019 and come into this season. Did not happen, obviously. Since then, uh, the Fleece family, the, the Troy Fleece and his brother and good folks there in Florida have taken over uh, some business for Mazda, in particular their Global MX-5 Cup cars. We had hoped they were going to, Graham, be able to do some TCR manufacturing, but that uh, Mazda 3 TCR project is uh, dead altogether was able to confirm, and I think we had someone ask about this in recent weeks. We did. Uh, car, as I asked, turned zero laps anywhere ever. It did run, I think, once on a chassis dyno. So uh, most likely just engine mapping work, but that's the only time that car uh, turned any wheels. But granted, it was in a static position, strapped into place on top of a chassis dyno. So... All that I know of right now is SDR in terms of racing efforts. Are they always somewhere in the paddock seemingly? One person, two, three people helping a team in some way in IMSA? I'd say that is, is definitely something you could look forward to, just not in a actual spirit of Daytona uh, full official effort. They're always seemingly working with someone to help them, whomever them happen to be, to do something but their primary thing right now is taking over for the Long family, Glenn Long, Tom Long, who are responsible for building the giant fleet of global MX-5 Cup cars here in America, and that is now something that they are doing on Mazda's behalf. Excellent stuff. Uh, Chris Ward says, this is a question about Le Mans hypercar. Could LMH be uh, eligible for the Mitchell Endurance Cup races? Uh, Chris says, he said, to say the car counts in IMSA, are troubling is an understatement. That said, with LMP3 being added to the mix next year, is there any hope that uh, LMH could be eligible for the Endurance Cup at all? He gives a 
but it would rather give us a sneak peek for the upcoming Le Mans hypercar LMDH, LMD Husky battles to come in the next few years. I would give that a negative 4 million percent possibility, Chris. We are not even confident IMSA will allow LMH, the uh, the hypercars, uh, to run here in IMSA after LMDHs have come to life in 2023. So forget short-term car counts and you name it. Uh, we have DPI, which is the top class. We don't know what the outright performance capabilities of LMH uh, would be. We think it's going to be fairly impressive compared to a DPI. So I can't imagine any scenario where IMSA would say, hey, let's invite some cars over that are going to embarrass all of ours uh, just to get a couple cars in. And Graham as well for talking 2021. We're not exactly expecting an overflowing grid of uh, Lamar hypercars. So nope. it'd be one thing, Chris, if we're talking about, hey, there's a dozen of them. Maybe you make an exception at the uh, endurance events. But granted, those are also IMSA's most prized, most heavily sold, if we're talking manufacturer-based. So I think just conceptually we have something that we can't really look past, which is, if Cadillac, Acura, Mazda uh, are paying pretty decent amounts to IMSA and Rolex 24 Daytona, Sebring, et cetera, et cetera, Petit Le Mans are the big halo events, why on earth would IMSA allow a class of car that is capable that we believe will be capable of going significantly faster uh, to potentially bump up the car counts a little bit while taking away the thing the full-time investors in IMSA are paying money for, advertising for, and whatnot, uh, just to try and bolster the grid a little bit. So that's why they have the LMP3s in there to get the car counts up. And I think you would also see Acura, Cadillac, and Mazda say, well, if you're going to let them come over and cherry-pick our stuff, then we probably don't need to show up. So... Uh, I think you could tr- trigger a pretty good re- revolt here. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what kind of war, but uh, this would be an ugly one. So I would say in an alternate universe, Chris, this is an awesome idea in the one that we live in, though, currently. Uh, no. Okay, we're going to move on. A couple of thoughts about the recent IMSA Roval race at Charlotte. Uh, Joshua Ponsett says, uh, hello guys, here Paul as well. have to say I'm pretty happy with how the MSR Charlotte Rover race turned out. The track looks to have a great flow for GT racing. What did you think? Should IMSA consider going back in the future? Whilst Dan Rice says he had mixed feelings about the Charlotte race. Not terribly fond of the track. Rain made the first part of the race difficult to watch on TV, but liked the fact the race was completely on the lights. It was the best of a 24-hour race at the night time without requiring coffee at an absurd hour. How do we get IMSA to keep a night race on the calendar going forward? Where else could they go for uh, Go for it this, uh, besides Daytona and Charlotte? I have no idea where else they would go to do this, to be really honest. Uh, I would say that I loved the Roval event. I know that some did not. 
read a variety of opinions about it. I know the series loved it because I asked. I know that some of the drivers that I spoke with, they absolutely loved it. Weather was terrible. Really, I would say a little bit more lighting would make the television viewing a bit of a a, a better experience. Granted, from a fun and challenge standpoint, Graham, there are some sections that were just significantly underlit, and therefore, you know, probably as a driver, that part might have been a little bit fun, a little bit of mystery as for exactly what's lying on the other side or if you're going to nail that apex uh, cresting a blind corner. But for the TV side, yeah, a little bit more lighting would probably help uh, enrich the experience there. Obviously, IMSA has set its calendar for next year, and the Roval's not on it as best as I can remember, but I do know that there was a takeaway after the race that we need to look at how to incorporate this. So can't tell you whether it's going to sneak onto next year's schedule, but I can tell you that IMSA was happy enough leaving that they are, are really interested in trying to make sure that it returns as quickly as possible. And as for the where else for a night race, again, I can't really think of any. I mean, granted, I can think of many. We can th- go to a variety of tracks that have the uh, the overhead lighting, the the somewhat ground-based Moog lighting and whatnot. There, there's plenty of places that have lights, but in terms of a place that would be really fun and enjoyable to watch and drive, and I think we found something here with the Roval that uh, hopefully IMSA can make more of a permanent aspect of its... Uh, of its offerings maybe that's the third gt only event each year we have two right now uh maybe becomes the third that'd be a lot of fun it's interesting isn't it? it's not the first time we've had things that have come out of covid that have attracted some really positive responses including going to places we used to going to but at a different time of year and that's worked out pretty well uh, it's going to be quite interesting to see whether or not we see maybe not next year in coming years, whether or not that might shake things up just a little. Um, but uh, let's have a little look further down here. Nicholas Coates uh, recently started watching the LMS and noticed it was all grade one circuits. How much of the lack of LMP2 participation in IMSA is down to circuit quality? He says if he was a gentle person, he's not. He'd sure, uh, sure he'd want to, uh, he's not sure he'd want to constantly squeeze past assassin-driven GTs around a muddy field in Ohio, it says here. Well, <laughs> yes, the uh, the assassin-driven cars, definitely uh, something to watch out for. Um, let's see. I don't know if uh, the concern here is so much about LMP2 fit and circuit grade so much uh and i could be missing the uh missing the exact angle here but you know on the topic of how much of the lack of lmp2 participation is down to the circuits i'd say absolutely zero uh i'm struggling to think nicholas of drivers who have said well i would compete in lmp2 in america if only they went to better places, um, that just really isn't a thing. So part of me wonders is if, is if Nicholas might be from outside the U.S. 
because this is just not so much of a topic that actually gets raised as Mm -hmm. anything. And I'm not claiming that all of our tracks are awesome, but I will tell you that the Rolex 24 at Daytona followed by Sebring, uh, Road America, Road Atlanta, Monterey. (laughs) I mean, okay. Uh, Watkins Glen. Um, I invite someone to push back and say those aren't tracks that pretty much everyone on the planet would love to drive. So maybe I'm missing there's an maybe I'm missing if there's another angle to this Graham or maybe you can spot something here but uh as I look at it and try and think of what I believe in terms of the tracks like we have LMP2 and their popularity and their general regard I don't hear about a lot of like, oh man, we got to go to this garbage heap again. That's not really the IMSA schedule. It it's not. I mean, I mean, having spoken to both professional and gentleman drivers that have either considered or are doing or are thinking of moving to IMSA, circuit choice is not part of it. What is an attraction, without a shadow of a doubt, um, is just the racing culture. In the United States, it's something that attracts an awful lot of people. We're going to come to a question in just a moment, um, and I can give an answer about part of that to do with into Europol and, and their motivations for it. But uh, one of the things that may count against it is um, is budget. Budgets are pretty high at the moment in the United States for just about everything in IMSA racing compared to certainly a European uh, alternative. To, to moving on to the next question here, which comes from Cody. Um, Cody says, what about expectations for into Europe on IMSA? Well, I can tell you the reason uh, they're there is because Kuba Shimoski, who's the, the, the uh, if you like, the anchor for the into Europol efforts in Europe, has always wanted to go and race in the United States. And Kuba is pretty quick on his day. The first opportunity they had to both test and run in Anorica, came over the weekend with uh, Petit Le Mans. They rather looked into a podium there, uh, but that's not a bad thing. That's just the way it sometimes happens with Pro-Am. Um, was delighted to see, by the way, albeit an American driver, a driver that's done much of his recent racing in Europe, Rob Hodes, um, really finding his feet there and putting in some pretty good lap times for uh, an uh, LMP2 Debutants. That team have confirmed they will carry on that effort. It may well not be with the same three drivers for the Sebring 12 hours. So a further boost there. Just got to be good news in 2020 for the LMP2 grid. And we'll have to hashtag wait and see whether or not they crack on and do more in the United States uh, next year. Worth reminding listeners, by the way, MP, that Inter-Europol did initially intend to race in the U.S., I think it was for a two or three race program last year, 2019, with their Ligier. Uh, but that did not come to fruition, I think, principally because they committed multiple cars to the Asian Le Mans series uh, later in the year. Uh, but it does seem to me that at the moment um, they're looking very closely at what kind of programs might emerge from that. And I think they're absolutely prime candidates that might be one of those European teams uh, looking to add perhaps the Rolex 24 and Sebring 12 hours in 2021. There we go. Might have one or two more here. Uh, one from mm-hmm. Ryan Terpstra about young Mr. DaCosta and uh, 
anyway, so maybe we take one or two more from IMSA. Got about an hour and a half to record overall today. Um, and then we can uh, move on. Joshua Ponce, actually, I'll read this one. This is from, yeah, the Mid-Ohio event where I didn't have the exact answer and I did get it. Uh, Joshua Ponce says Compass Racing needs to have a talk with their drivers. Uh, Mid-Ohio, uh, one of the My- Meyershank Racing Acuras, was body slammed three times on the front straight. Um, now this weekend, Jeff Kingsley punted Rob Ferriel during qualifying. I mean, I know they get to say, uh, I mean, I know they say get all you can get in qualifying, but come on, use your head. Uh, Josh, you got to drink less when you write these, buddy. I'm filling in a few words here for you, pal. Um, so coming back to the Mid-Ohio one, which made no sense at the time of why are you taking this gorgeous, priceless McLaren and then just bashing the living crap out of the side of this Acura, which I can I can't imagine what the issue was. So finally figured out, no, indeed, there was no uh, old beef between uh, who was driving the car for Compass at that event. Uh, Paul Holton, um, we also had no known issue with Super Mario, Mario Farnbacher. Turns out it was the BMW that went through. Uh, the factory BMW that went through hit the Compass Racing McLaren, and Holton was unaware that it was indeed the BMW uh, that was responsible for that. So coming out of the corner, it was simply a case of mistaken identity. And I don't know why I feel like I might have actually said this already uh, in a recent episode and have forgotten, but if so, sorry. If not, here we go. But yeah, Josh, 100% uh, mistaken identity with the uh, McLaren bashing the Acura, and in terms of the McLaren hitting Ferriol in the Audi, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, let, let, let's chuck in one here from John Washington, who says, uh, MP, can I get your thoughts on the falling car count in DPI? And also, how do you think Jared Andretti will do in his first year in LMP3? Know that Jared has a goal of racing at the Indy 500. And I would say that I'm really happy to see he and the Andretti Autosport team will be coming to the uh, independent LMP3 championship next year, not the new LMP3 class added into the uh, the top WeatherTech championship. I just am not totally sure about how Jarrett's dream of following in his father's footsteps and Competing at the Indy 500 is bolstered by running in an LMP3 prototype. Uh, Jarrett has been good, and I think demonstrated talent for sure in GT machinery. GT4 Mm -hmm. is really about the level that he's been at for a little while now. I think the jump to P3 is good. It will certainly tell us, based on his pace in general racecraft, as to whether aspiring for something big like IndyCar is realistic. Just a little curious, Graham, on the, if you do have a dream of getting to this open wheel place your dad was, maybe we're talking an Indy Lights season. Maybe we're talking something junior open wheel. It's not as if running LMP3 is a bad thing, just these are very specific things where there aren't a lot of areas that I can find that would be interconnected. So... Happy to have them coming. Even happier to see that they have a couple of sponsors who appear to be newish-ish to racing, but 
growing in interest in amplifying what they're doing. So I'd say that's really good. And anytime you have Andretti Autosport in the paddock, you also start to dream about, hmm, wonder if we could have them doing bigger things in the near future too. Uh, as for the drop in DPI count, uh, if we were not in the midst of a COVID-19 year and there was no COVID-19, do I think we would be talking about this? No, I don't. I'm really happy to see that Mazda is dropping down to one car compared to dropping out altogether. Uh, mm-hmm. Cadillac, as I've mentioned here and might have even written a little bit, uh, there are some hints and rumors that they're actually going to be going in a little bit harder next year and maybe doing a little bit more to support their team. So uh, this is definitely a Graham Goodwin watch this space moment. And I'm also very happy to see on the Acura front, uh, they could have very reasonably, John said, we're done at the end of the year, not only with Penske, but with imps altogether. The costs have just run away and they've come up with a plan where they're now not only returning, but working with two new teams. And those two new teams are bringing some of their financial relationships and sponsors to bear to make this uh, reasonable and feasible for Acura to stay in as a manufacturer. So in and among everything that's going on with COVID and all the financial problems we know about, only losing one factory car right now, I'd say, is is pretty darn good on the Mazda side. We'll have to see what happens on the Cadillac side if someone steps up to fill Wayne Taylor Racing's place in their roster so there's no drop in that overall car count. And then on the JDC Miller side, it's definitely a TBD. Uh, I think and hope we might see what we have this year, two cars continuing. So we're going to be down one or two, uh, just I'd say if that's all we are, that's that's pretty darn fortunate, my friend. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think uh, we have to count our blessings right now for anybody that makes an out this year and into next year. Huge financial pressures on literally everybody involved in everything, not just uh, sports car racing and motorsport. Uh, what else takes your fancy amongst the questions we've got in front of us here? Why don't I take uh, John, the? Uh, I'll take the one just quickly from Ryan Terpster about. Antonio Felix da Costa testing an IndyCar for Ray Hall out of Lanigan Racing early next month. Um, doing that very first IndyCar test, the team mentioned that Graham Ray Hall, uh, one of the two longer-term drivers of that at that team, uh, they are in baby watch and are expecting to have a child here soon. Um, so the team mentioned that uh, a relationship budding interest in between Antonio and wanting to test an IndyCar, one he'd expressed to Bobby Rahal many times, is now being manifest in his chance to test. And then, again, the fact that Graham's busy, yada, 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 would just throw in that uh, there's a certain Indy 500 winner <laughs> by the name of Takuma Sato that drives the other car for that team. And uh, if you just were wanting to go test, I would say he might be available. So this, Ryan, is the only thing that jumps out as a little bit curious um if graham was the only driver you wouldn't need a substitute he's not and they don't but they did decide to go to antonio so i'm not totally sure where this falls in terms of intent we know that takuma 
is out of contract at the end of the season. We are thinking he's going to be re-signed. The team has said they plan to. But could a largely open-wheel driver um, in Antonio, who has certainly impressed us, Graham, countless times uh, in sports cars, could he be on their radar for the somewhat near future if the 42, 43-whatever-year-old Takuma Sato, when he might retire, could he be someone that they just want to get a feel for and tuck that away for uh, potential breaking of glass and usage um, before we get too far into uh, the rest of the decade? Okay. So there we go. Any more on that list? Yes. What's next then? Uh, what's next? Well, you're the official selector, so we're moving on. Uh, Please yeah, send in your questions if, uh, yeah. if we didn't get to them in IMSA and any of the others coming up, by the way. Be remiss to say. Send them in again, and we're going to be doing, Graham, a call for questions very quickly here uh, because it's my fault for us getting this done so late. But where are we going, pal? We're going to Wet Asm's Elms ACO, ACO Rules Racing, which, uh, as we normally say, would be, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, my bailiwick in this endeavor we call Weekend Sports Cars. United Auto Sports is the opening question from our pal James Bacon. Having utterly dominated this season, how many entries will United Auto Sports actually have for next year's Le Mans 24 Hours? And are they likely to make use of them all, Graham? Also says similarly with the number 32 showing pace equivalent to the number 22. Are there any plans to step up for the full season and whack to a two-car team? It's a great question. The answer um, is potentially five places for the Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, that's uh, one before the number 22 car is a full season entrance from the WEC. Two um, comes the winning car from the Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, potentially at this stage, first and second in the European Le Mans Series Championship, both of which attract an autumn entry, and potentially winning the LMP3 Championship as well in the European Le Mans Series, which would mean a fifth entry for the Le Mans 24 hours. Maximum, I think, we've seen in terms of auto-awarded entries in recent years was four. That went to Jackie Chan DC Racing, and you may remember MP. They picked up their regular two, and two were, how could we put this, um, sublet to effectively Oak Racing for a couple of additional uh, Ligier P2 entries. This is three, four years ago now. Uh, so what will they do? I need to catch up with um, with Richard Dean and find out what their intentions are. As for stepping up to the WEC, that 32 car is a commercial car. So in other words, the three drivers in the 32 car, that's Will Owen, uh, Alex Brundle and Job Fenutet, are all bringing uh, budget, either via sponsorship or bringing budgets to that effort. The leap to the WEC is less profound than previously because, of course, it's a shorter season. But leap, nonetheless, it most certainly is. And I'm not at this point expecting that trio to step up. I'm aware of at least where one of those three is likely to find themselves in 2021, uh, which would not be United Autosports. Um, but the answer in terms of who's going to jump in which direction for the LMP2 family 
I think is a very interesting moment. I know we've got further questions about the process of defining what an LMP2 uh, driver lineup might be uh, elsewhere in the list here. But um, there's all sorts of questions at the moment about what might happen with United's Ultra Sports, a team with no little ambition. They'll be stepping into or back into GT racing next season with a GT4 effort. They'll also be entering Extreme E alongside Andretti Autosports, who they've got a uh, collaboration with. Uh, I think we're going to be hearing some more interesting stuff to come about exactly what they plan to do once the, well, the quick fire 2020 season where they've just been winning, it seems, at will. Um, once this is over, what is next? I think we'll be finding that one out in weeks rather than months. Not part of our WEC Aslam Elms ACO, but we'll mention here just because it dropped into my inbox, probably yours as well, while recording. Bathurst 12 hour called off for 2021. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's yeah. That, yeah, that was, I think, an inevitability, really, unfortunately, with the, um, the effective close down of uh, travel into and out of uh, Australia. There's, there's just no way that uh, that could possibly happen as an international event. And that's very sad. It's one of the standout events on the uh, GT racing calendar worldwide now. Uh, anybody that's, that either watches it or has been to it, I'm lucky enough to have done both, um, you know, would recognise that as an event of the highest quality. And that's a big casualty for COVID-19. Beginning to see MP, by the way, I'll mention this now, the effects of effectively a second wave in Europe with uh, the Adec GT Masters switching venues for their next race weekend uh, with the VLN cancelling their next event um, in, next weekend and beginning to hear as well concerns about what might befall the Spa 24 hours. Uh, I'm calling nothing. Uh, my, my view on these ones are we'll just, we will just allow the organisers to make their own determinations depending on what's going on. But I would say there are significant concerns about a number of European events moving forward now for the remainder of 2020. Indeed. Let's go to James Counter. Graham, what are your opinions of the concept being put forward in LMP2 about LMP2 AM? Uh, maybe not the way the WC are handling it. Uh, it says, hashtag me personally, I think it has the potential to be a good move, helping bring more money in for the team and making it accessible for competitors who can only bring a partial budget. I think my answer to it is it's less about bringing in the budget, more about giving some of these guys something to actually battle for. The reality is that with that the teams are so good at digging out talent and more to the point, talent that's got budget attached to it. It means that the true engines of Pro-Am racing, who are, generally speaking, the bronze drivers, uh, are effectively frozen out, not in terms of, uh, of racing, they can come and race, but they're not going to win. And that's been something I think has been ticking away uh, quietly in the background. Uh, there were some serious conversations about this, at the end of the 2019 season in Europe. I was party to one or two of those conversations. The key element now is actually quite a simple one. It's interestingly not one 
which seem re re uh, resolved, which is, and we've got to be careful here, um, we're calling it OMP2AM as opposed to ProAM because OMP2AM pro -AM anyway, but, uh, or at least it's supposed to be. But what we're talking about here is the proposal that both the WEC and the European Le Mans series adopt effectively a subclass that has a mandatory bronze driver. Uh, that you could have whatever you like effectively over and above that, but one bronze driver. The missing link here is we know they're going to get a separate podium. We know they're going to get separate points um, classification. We don't yet know whether or not they're going to get an automatic entry for the Le Mans 24 hours. And the answer is they have to. Less of an issue, of course, with WEC because they all get to go anyway. But for the European Le Mans series, my guess is what we'll see is a sporting regulation that puts a, um, a I don't know what you call a downward cap, a, a minimum number of cars uh, that would re be required for that to take place. It is not the first time we've seen this. We've had it for several years with the Asia Le Mans series uh, until this year with the older um, non Gibson cars, the pre-2017 cars, they're now done. So if LMP2M continues in Asia, it will be with the Gibson cars, as it obviously will be in Europe. But that, for me, is the key. That is a, a massive, massive lever to freeing up people's purse strings is the, is the opportunity to win an opportunity to go to Le Mans. And that, for me, has always been the key part of this debate, MP. It's This is not a it's not a, 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 a it's not a free pass for anything. What we're talking about here are people who want to compete against their peers. You know, you're not going to get a guy coming in from LMP3 or from Historic Racing, maybe, who's going to come out in and blow off the doors of Mikkel Jensen or Jan van Utzeb or Alex Brundle or Phil Hansen or Philippe Albuquerque. But he might give a bit of a fright to some of the more established bronze talent out there, likes of Enric Edmund, John Falb, etc. And that, I think, is what they're trying to now cater for. It's something where there's been a fair number of people banging on about this for some little while now. Um, and however the torturous the steps that were taken to get there, I'm glad we are getting there because I think this might be a positive in a world where in our motorsport family, we've never needed these guys more. We need these guys to get the um, the car numbers up. We need these guys to be keeping those teams busy. We need these guys to be putting the commercial uh, momentum behind the professional driver market as well. Uh, and I'll add in just for further spice, it doesn't get away from the fact that we still need somebody to decide to grip grasp the nettle that is silver driver ranking, which to my mind has always been the major problem through this. It's become a, uh, a ranking, an aspect of this, uh, this picture that's more abused than used now. And it's time we took another look at what silver is supposed to be, how you define it, how you police it, and whether or not actually one silver ranking, one silver grading is enough. Oh, it just seems like a mess. <laughs> uh, it seems is, like a yes. mess, brother. Um, and just mentioning here, James, the part about 
making it, making it accessible for competitors who can only bring a partial budget. If you're trying to play at the LMP2 level and you're talking partial budgets, I just think you don't belong. Uh, there are so many other classes, LMP3 being the first that comes to mind, but there are so many other forms of racing where instead of the series, whatever it might be, bending and trying to come up with alternate versions of a class to accommodate something where maybe people who can only come up with half the money can possibly get in, just say, I think there's a bit of a natural filter of if you're unable to play at the level properly, maybe it's not the series responsibility to jack its formula and classes around to accommodate for you. Maybe that's just, I mean, hey, I want to be a spaceman, but I can't necessarily (laughs) do all the things that are needed to be a spaceman. So should I expect NASA or whomever to adjust their entire process to uh, help me get in when I'm not really ready to do that, nor do I have the means or whatever. Um, again, we all have dreams, but I don't know if it's the series responsibility to adjust itself for those who aren't able to frankly get their shit together. So maybe that's a bit of a harsh view, but, um, there are other categories to consider that might be a better fit for whatever money or talent you can bring. That- yeah, I think you're, you're you're right. It's 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 one thing wanting something; it's quite another thing being able to achieve that. And if you, you need to actually be able to achieve that in two ways: one is through the talent you've got; two is with what you bring to it commercially. Either because you're bringing budget, or you're um, you're activating sponsorship opportunities that come with you. Or you've done what a lot of these guys do, which is that you've put the hours and the years and the miles in and you've worked hard to cultivate relationships with gentlemen drivers that are going to employ you. I'm going to give you an excellent example of this, by the way, and it's one that took place over the weekend again in the IMSA Prototype Challenge. Matt Bell, uh, the UK Matt Bell, by the way, brother of uh, McLaren GT factory driver Rob Bell. Matt works so hard to pull together those deals. He doesn't come with family money. He doesn't come with any of that. What he comes with is graft. And I just want to give you a bit of a tableau of exactly how important this is to a young driver. And Rob is still a, uh, oh, sorry, Matt is still a young driver. Two drives this last weekend, uh, first of which was with K2R uh, in the IMSA Prototype Challenge, and they won that championship, um, and he's been part of that all the way through. The second one, at, uh, in particular, on proper. And then on Saturday, uh, last weekend, at Monza, um, Matt had his uh, car broken into, and all of his gear was stolen including passport, including laptop, including phone, including all his COVID clearance materials. Um, And that Mm. left him with a weekend, with two days to turn that around. I spoke to him in the paddock and his world was in pieces. 
that was a huge commercial deal for him, not, not quite aside from the career deal for him. And he, together with uh, with with help of the professionals that surround him, managed to turn that around. He got to uh, Red Atlanta and he took that um, that prototype challenge um, title. It, it means a huge amount to these guys. This is their career. This is what they spend their lives working for. And when you see them grafting as the way in the way that they do, the best of them, MP, I have relatively little sympathy for those that basically want the bar lowered to allow them in when you've got people that can make it um, th- through, you know, a combination of talent, which again, young Mr. Bell has, and the ability to look at a marketplace and make it work for you. That That's what matters here. That's why driving talents at certain levels in motorsport is not enough nowadays. You've got to be more than just quick. You've got to be quick, clever, open, smart. You've got to tick all those boxes too. It is a seriously difficult job to maintain that kind of momentum for a length of time that we would define as a career and not a job. You look at people like, I'm going to mention Johnny Molum here. Uh, I'm Congratulations on your retirement, Johnny, by again, the way. Yeah, again. Yeah, um, but, but, but I'm lost in admiration for the fact that Johnny's managed to keep that going for decades. You know, and he's done that not just because he's quick behind the wheel of a car, but because he spots where the other work needs to be done and does it, and does it um, with energy that just never seems to, 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 to fade. And he's now sitting there with, you know, happy customers with his new venture in Red River Sports. And I wish him and all the others out there that are trying to do the same at different levels, MP, all the very best. The, the opportunities are out there. We shouldn't need to have to change, to move the goalpost terribly far to accommodate um, people's wish to get involved in this sport. I think that was a really vaguely polite, lowish energy soapbox moment. We haven't had one of those in a while. So, <laughs> ah, there you go. Brought to you by uh, LM Husky. Uh, fine. Indeed. It was a slip. Fine new IPA on the market. So yeah, um, you, might, you might hear him in the background. Actually, he's just he's quietly snoring on the couch behind me at the moment. Well, I've got Rosie to my right, as my wife refers to her, face down, drunk at the bar. She does this Excellent. thing where she just puts her head straight down, and it just it looks like she's exactly fallen asleep, facing the peanuts at the pub. And then Rocky, can we, can, can we just? Can we ju- can we be clear that this is Rosie and not Chabral? Oh, you do not not want her to phone in a drone strike, buddy. I wouldn't even start playing there. That's why I don't at all. Uh, and then Rocky, being the little California cat, he's snoring away in the sun uh, on top of my scanner. So nor- there's the pet update, the uh, the always required pet update. Uh, let's go to Rob Horn. Talking about DKR, LMP3, and Dominance, along with United Auto Sports Dominance this year in LMP2. What are your thoughts, Graham, about DKR's Dominance with winning four titles four years in a row? Well, nearly. Well, they're nearly there. They're nearly there. So this is for the Michelin Le Mans Cup, and absolutely right, Rob. 
um, that they have been extraordinary. And with Norma machinery and now with Duquesne machinery, it's particularly impressive, I think, this year with the Duquesne because the reality is in European Le Mans series uh, competition, it's not been as impressive as all that. It's been pretty much a leisure year. They're just doing something right, aren't they? Uh, DKR just do seem to be able to produce the goods. Combination, again, it's it's more or less what we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes. It's getting the right bronze drivers to come in with a funding package and bringing with them, you know, somewhat backed, um, talented, young, um, professional drivers. Laurence Hur is uh, one of those guys. Leonard Hergenboom in the past has been part of that uh, effort. Uh, but they do keep finding talent on this European marketplace. And once I think it, it, it's a, it does become easier, doesn't it, in this marketplace? Once you've got a record of having won titles, then the reality is if you're a gentleman driver or a young driver out there looking for where to go, they're going to be pretty much top of the list. Um, and certainly I get involved in conversations every single week with you know older drivers younger drivers the, the the fathers of younger drivers the backers of younger and older drivers you know looking for where the opportunities might be looking for recommendations as to where they might take that budget looking for recommendations about what that budget might buy and in the case of dkr uh, it seems to me it's a combination of two things it's great stewardship of the assets they've got that's the human and the mechanical assets they've got and it's the preparation of those mechanical assets in particular that means that they're able to go out and attack. Rather oddly, they've never really done it properly. Sometimes that's not, not properly. They've never really had those kind of results in the European Amon series. But faultless through the last three, four years in the Michelin Le Mans Cup. And they're just one of those teams. And, you know, fill in your favourites from elsewhere, you know, you know, Black Falcon in their day uh, on the Nürburgring always produced cars that were fantastic. Rizzi Competizione, you can see a Rizzi car from a mile away because the thing always looks absolutely amazing. TF Sports in GT racing. These teams that just develop this reputation for producing really good cars that are going to be going out there and are going to be competitive come what may. Yeah, look at that. It's a nice little explanation. Uh, let's see. Stephen Gate, given Gerard Nouveau's fairly damning indictment of Silverstone in his recent interview with Graham Goodwin. Uh, Stephen mm-hmm. wonders, when the ELMS and WEC does return to good old Great Britain, will it be at Donington instead? Have bridges been burned at Silverstone? He closes by saying, hashtag me personally. I forlornly pray for Brands Hatch, but I know that's unrealistic. So, did he drive the nail in Silverstone? Was it already driven before you spoke? Uh, I think the answer is we knew things hadn't been great for Silverstone for a wee while. Um, the two things being mentioned, three things being mentioned. One is the commercial deal. Two is the kind of the tone of that deal. Three is the looming prospects of Brexit, and that question was asked and answered. And it's not the only person that's given us the same answer, which is it's a risk they don't have to take. You know, this is part of the the debate about Brexit uh, here in the UK is 
there is this assumption that the rest of the world needs us more than we need them. And I'm afraid I'm not a believer on that front. I'm afraid there's some shock coming on those kind of fronts. So, Stephen, if they do... Well, number one, Gerard leaves at the end of this year. So if there is an, if there is an interpersonal part of that equation, then there's going to be an opportunity to see that that's part of the equation when we get into conversations about 2022. Um, I have heard both sides of that story. I've heard several parts of both sides of that story. And I think it's going to be interesting when we get into contract negotiations for the following season for 2022 as to what happens there. Um, would it be going to Donington Park instead? Well, uh, bear in mind Donington Park now uh, parts of Jonathan Palmer's um, empire. Uh, he would be interested in bringing that there were there a decent payday to come i think uh, anybody going knocking on jonathan palmer's door and demanding uh, any kind of sanctioning fee for an fiwc race is going to be a very very short conversation indeed i share your wish and um completely agree with your uh forlorn uh, side of the the prayer about brands hatch one of my favorite places in the world uh, I don't see us going back there for. Uh, I don't see us going there for WEC. I'm not sure they would ever manage to get that uh, cleared for uh, ELMS. I do happen to think it would race awesomely well. I just think we're at the stage now where these cars are just so quick that it probably is now unrealistic in this day and age to see a brand that should welcome, you know, a 30-plus car grid of snarling, snapping. LMP and GT cars. Hope I'm wrong. Suspect I'm not. Let's try and huck two vaguely related things your way and maybe then wonder if we should move on and spend the last half hour flirting between the other two categories. Why don't we jam Stathis Coco together who asks, will the BOP for the Le Mans hypercar class be automated or manual at least for year one curious if you have any info there Graham also our pal Daniel Summersgill asks could LMP2 cars be in the overall podium on a regular basis in the WC next season so as a reason being hashtag me personally the reliability of the new LMH cars is likely to be suboptimal with retirements uh, and reluctance to stay out of the garages along with the smaller difference in speed making overtaking harder. So, hmm, what says you on the two? Let's go for Stanis first. Um, the, uh, the hypercar side of things, more information required at the moment from the ACO. Uh, we did have an opportunity to have conversation with the technical director at Le Mans. I will unhappily say here that that's not an interview I've yet got to the moment to uh, to to transcribe. Oddly enough, uploaded it into my transcription system today. So fingers crossed that gives us a little bit more than I thought we got, but there's not a lot quite yet that gives us those details. Bear in mind that this has been a very movable feast, um, you know, not just fine-tuning, but some significant changes coming uh, in the way in which that's all come together. I suspect what you're going to find is there's going to be elements of both, I think there will be, uh, you know, effectively a first first stab at it, and then there'll be um, the algorithm-led uh, aspects of it will come in once we know we've got some known knowns 
the not many known knowns at the moment with these cars that, um, well, in the case of one of them, just about exists now. The Toyota will be testing very, very soon now. Um, and in the case of the uh, the case of the Glickenhaus, coming together at a pace. Uh, as for Daniel's question about LMP2 cars on the overall podium, um, quite possibly so. One of the things that's always a bit of a buzz about when you've got something completely new and not only the individual cars, but the class is completely new uh, next year. And what do we think we've got? We think we've got maybe a six-car field for most of the season for the WEC in the top class. Um, note again that a further um, public statement from Glickenhaus, names only Sebring, Spa and Le Mans, not for the first time um, for the season. But let's talk about six for the time being. That is five hypercars, two Glickenhaus, two Toyota, one by Collis, plus the grandfathered um, uh, Rebellion, which will now be uh, an Alpine with Signatech Alpine. That should be reliable. The other cars, we don't know. Will there be an opportunity for uh, podiums? Yeah, in exactly the same way as there were opportunities in the past for Rebellion to be on the podium when we had multiple uh, LMP1 hybrid class cars. Uh, they didn't often make it, is the straight answer. Uh, so could we get to the stage where there's a bit more of an attrition race? Yes, we could. And the odds are that we might. Um, but something about the way in which these things generally come together, MP, a reasonably reliable uh, Alpine, Toyotas, which after the first couple of races, I would have thought should be pretty ironclad. It's not stretching the envelope as much as the LMP1 car were uh, was. I'd be surprised if it came, it became regular. If it did become regular, then I think you've got a bit of a crisis in the top class. Can we go ahead and just start calling the Alpine-badged rebellions Alpillions? And uh, is, that, is that anything like an alpaca? I don't know, but I think... <laughs> I might refer to them as Alpillions just because that's what my brain did without asking with those two words. Uh, Answers on a tweet to hashtag the week in sports car, hashtag twist, and let's see what you think we should be calling those cars. Hashtag Alpillion? I don't know. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Rob Horn, are you taking a break from commentating on LMC slash Elms. Uh, was weird not hearing you partner Johnny Palmer last weekend, which would have been two weekends ago, I think. I'm not exactly sure. Yep. And then the last one I'll throw at you here to cl close the category, Tigera 380. Any update on the Thunderhead Carlin effort? A month ago, saw a truck in the M4 westbound close to Bristol, which I took as not a good sign. Okay, let's answer the second one first. Um, Thunderhead Carlin, don't know what the plans are for next season. We will not be seeing that car, the Delara, that did so well in Asia uh, in the European Le Mans series this year. I hope we'll see them back. Um, I, I'm not sure at this stage. So uh, I will reach out to Carlin and find out what they'll tell us. I will reach out to other parties concerned and see what they'll tell us. But I'm hearing some mixed reports about the potential for that being a car. I hope it does come back because the car was super competitive in Asia 
across the four races, unlucky not to take the title. Uh, am I taking a break from commentating with uh, Le Mans Cup and EMS uh, in 2020? Uh, I am. It's not my choice, but uh, I am. Um, so the answer there is I'm not commentating on the European Le Mans series this year. I am at all the races. Um, I am helping because that's the way I, I'm wired. Uh, the teams that are coming in to do that commentary. Uh, but uh, no, I am not commentating on the European Le Mans series. And for the avoidance of any doubt, no, I'm not very happy about the fact that I'm not commentating on it. Where are we going next, my friend? Let's go to the weirdly 1940s Herr General. Ooh. Um, yeah, I'm going to crack in here with one from Justin Fontaine. Uh, Justin's been wondering about the nature of sponsorship in the sports car world. In NASCAR, for example, a driver is usually on the hook for finding the primary sponsorship for themselves to shop around to different teams. Does finding your own primary sponsorship become more difficult in sports cars due to the fact the company is essentially footing the bill for a car, not only to be driven by the individual who brought them on board, but also other drivers outside that driver-sponsor combination? Good question. Well, worth noting, Justin, that there's many forms of sports car racing. Some of them yep. involve co-drivers. Some of them do not. So there's no hard uh, exact rule that says if you find a sponsor that you must uh, split costs, share promotions with someone else who could bring a sponsor. So again, depending on the form of sports car racing you're getting into, you may be the sole driver and your sponsor might be the featured presence on the vehicle. If we're talking endurance racing, obviously, where more than one driver is required, then indeed there could be a collision of, quote, primary sponsors. Tends more often than not, Graham, to be a case where uh, if we have an endurance competition and someone's bringing a primary sponsor, I would think in most instances it would not be factory-based. Although if we look at IMSA, for example, and DPI, those are factory-ish vehicles. In the case, Graham, of a few teams, they have their own sponsors. Wayne Taylor Racing with Konica Minolta, although we do know, obviously, General Motors supports them and the other teams involved. The JDC Miller Cadillac team, uh, they are reliant upon sponsorship there. Um, but in some cases, we have a gentle man or gentlewoman driver. The AM and a Pro-AM lineup, where they may be bringing money, if not a lot of money, but... You don't necessarily see uh, big stickers on the car representing no. that company. Could be personal wealth compared to taking money from their business um, and such. So just a lot of different ways and flavors, Justin. There's no one answer we can give, unfortunately. But I would say that the <laughs> the one thing that is unique, Graham, is... How often do you have a sports car driver walking around with a primary sponsor to bring to a team? Like that is actually the rarity. I'm not saying no, it never you're, happens. You're absolutely right. I'm just saying you're absolutely right. Ooh, uh, you are the analysis here or the parallel, Justin, of in NASCAR, for example, as you mentioned, one car, one driver. I'd say that ends up being the dynamic more often than not where a driver is walking around with sponsor with a primary sponsor, it'd probably be in more of a solo type uh, 
racing scenario, not so much in endurance racing. It happens occasionally, just not the norm by any means. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. We talked earlier about the 32 United car. Uh, there are certainly personal sponsors involved in that car. Uh, Alex Brundle, for instance, brings with him backing from Richard Beale, from Adrian Flux, an insurance broker here in the UK. Uh, amongst the suite of backers that Job Van Utrecht brings is Jumbo Supermarkets, which, oddly enough, is a rival team in the WEC to United Autosports with Fritz Van But uh, obviously, Fritz has on occasion employed the uh, talents of Job Van Utrecht aboard the racing team Redland car and might very well do so in the future. So, um, it, it is a very mixed market. Basically, what you're dealing with is you start with a very big number. That's the number that's going to get that car onto the grid. And uh, whichever way you can, you find that, whether or not it's through team sponsorship, in other words, sponsorship that comes directly to the team, whether or not it is in, it's individual wealth for somebody that's uh, doing this for you know, for uh, their own fulfilment and the experiential side of things, or whether or not it's coming with individual personal sponsorship that the professional drivers bring to the party. Whatever way they can do it, uh, it's magic, really, magic. Somehow we tend to get 30 or 40 cars in a grid um, at no small cost whatsoever. There are, there are no cheap deals in sports car racing nowadays, but it's a good question, Justin. Um Christopher Matthias next says, uh, this is late to the party. Hopefully it can be held over the next show, but no, you don't have to. Were there any teams or drivers you'd have liked to have seen get together for a go at the Le Mans virtual earlier this year? Hashtag me personally, he'd have loved it if Lucas Odenis, John Mardenborough, Florian Strauss and Katsilasa Chio had a GT Academy virtual class reunion racing an LMP2 car around the virtual Cirque de la South. That's a good call. For me... MP, I'd, I'd prefer with I, I, what I'd hoped we might see were one or two of the kind of the classic teams. Wouldn't it be great to get the the Audi Sport boys back together? I uh, sure, Christopher. Full disclosure, I didn't pay a lot of attention to this, and I gave I wasn't negative craps, but it was close to no poop whatsoever and it's not because i didn't think it was cool interesting or awesome it's because i had a lot of other things going on that really just made plugging into this non-real race and fantasy scenarios i didn't even bother so i apologize for being way too far removed from the whole thing to even have any post uh virtual Le Mans event thoughts that might be of any interest but this is the park ram where it's never bad to mention that's the awesome part, though, of being a fan. Mm. Like, Christopher, the fact that you dug this and loved it and just want to keep, you know, looking at this and, and coming up with stuff about it, that's the great thing that powers our sport. Maybe a little bit for some of us who work in it every day and who are busy doing stuff all the time. Like, maybe the, the same level of fandom or attention varies depending upon the subject or event, but... I don't have to give a crap about this or have paid any attention to it to still know that it's awesome that you loved it and in theory want to see it continue and have more of these fun type lineups, uh, fantasy, real or otherwise, uh, come back to play. H how about this? Wh why don't we come up with a team of modern day drivers 
representing old past legends of the sport. Could we have Han Stuck driving, representing his father as his father in some sort of super ancient retro mm. uh, auto union, whatnot? I don't know. I mean, could Ooh, we have the all sons and fathers. fathers and dads and daughters and mothers? And, you know, again, I don't know. Just saying. That's quite fun. Uh, if we're going to have a virtual race, how can we get a modern Audi driver to be burned Rose Meyer? Um, yeah, again, I don't know. Let's model it up and have some fun. Um, this is, uh, this is the stuff that keeps the sport going. Uh, even well, when some it, of us are a, it, preoccupied elsewhere. It's an odd one, but back in the day, not the, um, the most recent Ganassi Ford effort, but before then, when we had the GT one, uh, Ford GTs back in 2010, 2011, 2012. Robertsons um, and, uh, yeah, all kinds of good stuff. Yeah. But but um, there was a moment where, and I can't remember who the conversation was with, where it, uh, it was, wouldn't it be cool when those cars went to Le Mans if you could have a car filled with the sons, and in one case the daughter, of drivers that drove those cars, the original cars in period. And uh, Vanina Ricks, obviously, is the lady I was uh, concerned with. Eric Liddell was a man back in the day that drove a GT40. Robin, his son, uh, very much a, a part of it. I'm trying to think who the third one was of that group. But there were three um, much younger drivers, very contemporary and very able drivers. That, that would have been a cool thing to see at Le Mans 24 hours. I'd still love to see something like that in the future. Let's see. I can rattle through a couple here. Uh, Ivan Pandev says, am I the only one who feels like the camera work in WEC and the ELMS is very different stylistically to IMSA? Um, I feel like the Euro series placer cameras lower and use higher zooms, which give you amazing panning shots through the corners. IMSA tends to have zoomed out cameras placed higher up and it doesn't quite convey the same sense of action for me. Is this is any of this by design? Also says thanks as always for the amazing content. Uh, I mean, I'm just I guess I'm overstate the obvious guy. Uh, these are two completely unrelated series on different parts of the world who do things very differently. So I would expect the styles to be very different. Whether one does it a way that folks like and the other does it a way that maybe fewer people like, I would only expect. Uh, organizations that are a thousand percent unrelated to do things completely different. Um, IMSA, I thought looking at Petit Le Mans did a rather amazing job with a variety of camera angles, high, low, and otherwise. Uh, one thing that I know IMSA has invested into heavily, Graham, in recent years is the acquisition of a uh, helicopter camera angle. Mm -hmm. And so I think we get some pretty unique stuff from that. But, um, yeah, Yvonne, I would just say, of course they're different because it's different networks, different camera operators, you name it. One thing that I'd say IMSA has done that I haven't really seen others emulate is their pit lane work. And when a pit stop is being done, um, you feel like you are about to get hit by the cars as they leave because the camera is placed on top of the vehicle beneath the rear wing an inch away from a rear tire 
and it feels as if you get a full plume of, of tire smoke in your face when the cars pull away. Or So, mm-hmm. yeah, stylistically, lots of differences, and uh, I would just only expect folks to love one more than the other since these are completely unrelated series and networks doing the coverage. I'll add this, and it's a not to do with sports car racing. But it's a moment at... Um, the Autosport Awards many years ago, I went along as a guest of Pirelli, who oddly enough backed us at Delhi Sports Car for our uh, American Le Mans series coverage back in the day. And as part of that award ceremony, they showed us a highlight reel from Formula One, but it wasn't a highlight reel that was drawn from the TV coverage. It came from what was then Bernie Vision. Um, the initial kind of cable offering, the digital offering that uh, was provided to um, a fee-paying audience. And it was stunning. When you look at, uh, at, the, at the time, the kind of offering from Formula One was cameras that were way high up, um, quite a way back from the circuit, and removed the, the feeling of speed. Here, uh, there was one shot in particular uh, through the S's at uh, Melbourne, where I remember the entire ballroom just taking in a sharp intake of breath as a uh, car came tear-assing through like a you know low-flying missile. Uh, it's that sense of speed that does, I think sometimes it's missing. It's certainly the case that very many camera angles and even some in-car um, actually make motorsport look easy. It isn't. If you think you can do it by looking at TV, you can't. Or you almost certainly can't. Uh, but long may it be the case that people do it differently. Long may that be the case. I tend to agree with you, by the way. I think uh, in the US, much more adventurous in terms of uh, what is done uh, on pit lane than we have been in Europe. Uh, we're very lucky to have some really good production uh, in Europe. It wasn't always the case. Uh, we're now back to, I think, a level that we can be proud of. Got a series of questions here from John D., Right Turn Lover, Daniel Summers Gill, and a few others. It's it's a little more inside baseball, but clearly enough folks people noticed and have cared. Yep. Travel destinations, part of yep. dailysportscar.com's network of friends, supporters, and family for a good long while. Yep. Just speaking for North American listeners who have no idea what Travel Destinations is, it's really not a presence we have here in the States, but I know for sure that the UK and Europe in general, when we were talking about time to go to name the motor racing event, uh, travel destinations is often thought of first as a service to help arrange such things uh, and also some pretty cool packages put together. So as a result, travel destinations has been like a Cooper tires to us, justice brothers to us and so on. Uh, travel destinations has been a great partner of a, a lot of a lot of reputable uh, outlets like your own graham saw that they were indeed purchased by a company that does not carry necessarily the same level of reputation and therefore we have a bunch of questions from folks who are okay. concerned so can you just speak okay. to that in general knowing that there might be some okay. business sensitivities I, no, no, that's fine. I mean, I think it's it would be unusual if there weren't questions about this. They, they have been such a prominent part of that uh, kind of independence travel solution. I should say, by the way, um, there certainly are 
people from the states that use them. I mean, I, on a number of occasions, have been invited to go and talk to customers on the campsites at Le Mans, and uh, a pretty substantial uh, proportion of the people in their higher-end uh, camping solutions at Le Mans 24 Hours uh, come with an accent that is most certainly not British. Uh, Australian, Canadian, uh, US, their, their, their um, reputation goes far and wide. First thing to say is this. I know how hard it is right now to be in the media business uh, through COVID-19 and the challenges that that's actually brought with it. I think we can dial that up to 11 billion um, for the challenges that it's posed to the travel industry. Um, because, put simply, nobody's traveling. I, I actually booked my first flight, my first commercial flight, three days ago, um, since the end of February. Uh, it's a short European flight for a European Le Mans series race. In that intervening period, I, as a single individual, would probably have taken 20 flights. That's just flights. Um, the impact this has had on the travel industry as a whole is going to be catastrophic. It's as simple as that, okay? So they've done well to get this far uh, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think the, the recognition here was that the impact on their capital, because it, it is, if anything, worse for a company like Travel Destinations, because of course, such a key part of their business revolves around events that have simply not been taking place. And now they are taking place, they're taking place behind closed doors, that such a large proportion of their income uh, and their customer base comes from that, that you're effectively digging into cash reserves from day one and continuing to do that so as long for as long as this goes forward. And at some point, the people who own those entities are gonna have to say, we can't sustain this anymore. So perfectly correct, uh, they are now been purchased by Motorsport Network. It's the company which we're talking about. My information is this, is everybody that did work for Travel Destinations continues to work for Travel Destinations. That if you call them, the same people will be answering the phone, the same deals will be on offer, the same customer service will be there. Um, why has it happened? It's happened for two reasons. The difficulties financially that every company in the travel business is currently in are very real for them. And on the second front, why is Motorsport Network interested in them? They're interested in cash businesses. It's as simple as that right now. There's a lot of things that are going wrong um, in the media business right now. Uh, there's there's, there's a, a paucity of cash flow going through them. And for some time, Motorsport Network have been looking for other ways to drive cash through their larger operations. Um, what will I say beyond that? Will we remain uh, you know, partners to them. That, that remains to be seen. They are my friends, you know, you know, all of them. Uh, it's as simple as that. We talk very often about these things, uh, about, uh, you know, the, the pressures that are actually out there. I don't intend that for that to change in any way, shape or form. I am glad that the people there are, are going to remain employed uh, through a period where that was anything other than definite uh, days and weeks ago. Am I disappointed? Of course, I'm disappointed. Uh, I'm disappointed for one reason, uh, that this is necessary. I'm disappointed that uh, the purchaser is a market competitor in other areas for me. 
will this affect the status of that business in relation to my business? I don't know. It's a straight answer at this stage. Um, you know, it, it, it comes down to this. I'm aware of the conversations I've had privately with the people at the head of that company. I'm very happy with those conversations. I'm very happy that their fine people will uh, stay in employment for a good while longer as a result of those decisions. And we move forward. You know what? This is a very different world and it's going to get a hell of a lot more different before we're through this. And I think whatever rivalries, whatever issues that have been out there, we're going to have to find different ways around them. And if this is the different way that allows that company to continue to, to be selling products and for them to be still providing employment for people that, that you know you and I and P care about, then that's something I'm prepared to suck up. Simple as that, guys. It's not the time for us to be uh, pushing forward any kind of petty jealousies we've got in business terms. As I've said on this show and elsewhere, and I'll say it again right now, now is not the time for people in any market sector to be kicking the living crap out of each other. Now is the time to look after each other and make sure that we're all still here on the other side of it, because that is not a given in any industry right now other than potentially retail. Um, you know, that is not a given for anybody providing a non-essential service right now. And I think we need to take that into account. We're developing our views when news that might usually de might normally have disappointed us breaks like this. It's a good example of where we need to take a breath. So hold on. Are you trying to suggest that motor racing is a non-essential industry green good when what out loud. talking about racy cars are you yeah. are you actually suggesting okay uh i'm gonna <laughs> grab a handful of other hagen arouse we're uh, let me take a look at the old clockometer here all right yeah we should be done in about five minutes but that's not gonna happen okay um what? okay i'm gonna go to our pal lance snyder i love lance he's my minister of mirth for my shows so uh lance snyder Hashtag me personally on the SRO classes as someone who deals with classes all the damn time as a volunteer flagger. How in the hell did the SRO let things get so convoluted? Lance asks, and this is probably the question of the episode here. Similar sounding class names, subclasses for pro-am, pro-pro, mid-pro, pro-mid, and mid, not am, but not a pro, all for both sprint and enduro rounds. Can we just go back to a time where there was World Challenge GT and World Challenge Touring Car? I'm with you because, yes, I, I do yeah. believe we have pro-am, pro-pro, mid-pro, pro-mid, am-mid, not am, but not pro. But And then we have both Sprint, single driver, and they don't really call it Sprint X so much, but uh, they're short wannabe enduro rounds. I'm a thousand. I use it all the time. I'm a thousand percent with you, pal. World Challenge GT and TC. It worked. It There were good car counts. It wasn't confusing, and the racing was great. I can't possibly stay on top of all the machinations here. And this maybe goes back to the earlier, very polite soapbox, Graham, of, you know, if you just <laughs> constantly bend your classes to accommodate for three or four or five people, uh, entries... Uh, if you, that's what you need to do to stay alive, great. But 
uh, if it ends up becoming just the norm, that tells you that maybe you've got something that's kind of broken and you're not fixing it. Uh, okay, a couple others I can rattle through somewhat quickly that were by chance all jammed together. Do you think Ant Davidson will get another chance of winning Lamar overall with a major works program? It would surprise me, Dennis Prokniak, who asks that question, mm-hmm. knowing that Ant has found, I believe, a pretty good groove on doing pro side of uh, LMP2 and or getting nice invitations as they fit his schedule. But yeah. moreover, he's become a pretty darn respected Formula One analyst and that occupies 20-plus weekends per year. It does. I would say young Mr. Davidson, who I just have thought the world of and love, just love me some Aunt Davidson. I would think, Dennis, that he's found a, a pretty good place in life right now, and the thought of having to abandon all that, uh, if not abandon the vast majority of that, to ramp back up to another factory LMH or whatever type program. I don't want to speak for him. I just say externally, it appears that he might be in a place where that, I don't know if that would be a fit for where he's at in life. Um, Let's see. Don Gregory Graham says, hi guys. I was wondering if either of you had any information could tell us about the new KTM Expo GTX recently unveiled and set to compete in GT2. Uh, GT2 competing where Graham? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a five-cylinder Audi-powered um, supercross bow, if you like. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, I'm writing about that right now. Um, but uh, GT2, God, their timing was terrible, wasn't it? Uh, right at the point where people weren't spending that kind of money. Um, I believe GT2 will be the official support series uh, next year when the DTM returns. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Let's wait and see how that uh, one works out. Ricky, Although interestingly, oh, go ahead, one sorry. little bit of one, one little bit of information that broke today, which is that the ADAC GT Masters, which is the German Ooh. National GT3 Championship, which by the way celebrates its 200th race today, uh, or its 100th race meeting this weekend, um, that that is going to be renamed next year as the German International GT Championship. I can only think of one reason why they'd do that. And that is to give space for something national, which basically means that DTM is going to go for it come what may. Um, So I don't think that's going to be successful. I've been wrong before, at least once. Um, uh, But as for GT2... Would the acronym for that be GITS? GT2, it's going to have have a kind of rather staccato introduction, I think. But uh, we've seen the GTX in its kind of development form, race a couple of times and race successfully a couple of times. It's quite a funky looking thing. Um, and we need a bit of unusual. We needed a bit of left field in the world at the moment. And, you know, Hans Greiter, Thomas Enger and all the crazy gang at, K- at KTM and Writer Engineering, uh, more five cylinder power to them, I say. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Ricky Zagata. How did things go so wrong for Coda? It was my understanding the track had 10-year contracts with F1, MotoGP, and backing from state governments and college classes on site to help make the track financially stable. Yeah, well... Didn't they 
didn't they blow the state government thing yeah, by not they, filling the form incorrectly? Yeah, the the big zil many was it twenty something million dollar reimbursement by the state. Yeah, they missed the, I think the filing deadline. deadline. There was some other paperwork and studies and or whatever detailed information that was needed that was not done on time. There was an appeal. Uh, saying, hey, yeah, we missed it, but, you know, we got it all together. Could you please give us a pass? The state said no, uh, unless something else has happened since then that I've missed. A couple of very quick things, Ricky. So opulent facility in smack dab the middle of nowhere. Now, granted, it's right next to Austin, Texas. Austin's amazing. Just about everybody that I know that's ever been there loves it. But it's in the middle of nowhere from a sense of no one thinks of Austin, Texas and motor racing. They think of food and music uh, and they think of festivals. They might even think of technology, Graham. It's become known as kind of a uh, uh, Texas Silicon Valley equivalent. Yeah, you mentioned football. Stick and ball sports are very popular, but just an odd place to stick a motor racing track in as we've seen and discussed on the show before, uh, it's a place that welcomes a traveling crowd in order for it to have significant um, audience and income. So mentioning F1 and MotoGP, it's great. Big traveling crowds that fly in, uh, imported crowds, you could almost say, uh, and certainly a lot of American fans and or just those in America with uh, who have a love for either of those series will turn up there. But that's two events for the year. And they do have concerts. That's another somewhat regular income generator. But in terms of the motor racing circuit itself, every other form of racing they've had has been a financial failure, including IndyCar, which uh, raced there, what, once, I think? Maybe, yeah, once and are done. So just the structure of the place, Ricky, it is big and takes a lot to turn on and needs a lot of people and corporate backing to turn a profit. It doesn't have that happening nearly as much as they would have expected. The management of the place has been a bit all over and the connection to the state in terms of receiving funding and subsidies and all kinds of stuff. That's also been a bit contentious last thing to mention especially with covid hitting and all the things we know about folks really watching all of their dollars it's become one of those glaring expensive things in the state that after however many years you just hear more and more folks graham say why are we spending money on this thing why are we giving it either tax breaks or refunding lots of just why what how is this doing good for us and I am concerned for its, I wasn't even going to say long-term viability, Ricky, Sh- medium to short-term. Like, if it is still an active motor racing circuit by, what, 2025, 2026, I'll be very surprised. I don't want it to be that way. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know how it gets fixed. And it all comes from the standpoint, Graham, of, wow, look at this big old huge thing. And unless it's like a huge ocean creature that demands massive amounts of food every day to stay alive. 
And if there is a shortage of food, if there is warming oceans or who knows what, all of a sudden this big creature is at risk of death because there's just not enough to feed it. And boy, this thing hasn't been fed properly since almost day one. Um, is there anything else before we move to fun quickly and then say farewell? Uh, let's have a quick look. A uh, question from Rob Chalmers about what happened to Simon Dolan. Ceasing putting out the occasional interesting tweet. Power coming doesn't race anymore. It's cracking. I mean, he was indeed. I think he's looking at coming back. Uh, Simon went off, uh, concentrating on his business life and was doing some Ferrari Corsa Cliente um, running in his very lovely, uh, fairly recent Ferrari Formula One car. Uh, more recently, he's uh, gaining some notoriety for uh, living in Monaco and uh, writing a lot about keeping Britain free through the COVID uh, pandemic. I'm making no comment on that other than I don't think it's very productive and very welcome. Certainly not in my household. Uh, love Simon dearly. Um, not finding his twit- Twitter presence to be particularly constructive right now. Uh, moving forward, uh, I think it's time for fun. What? We're going to fun? I think so. All right. Well, grab <laughs> grab a couple of fun things, and then uh, we will say I'm gonna go goodbye. For, yeah. I'm going to go for James Counter's one here. What's the most embarrassing typo I've ever made? I can't remember, but I will give you a more recent one. She can't hear me because I think she may have gone to bed. But uh, one that's my good lady, who is otherwise faultless, did make indeed this week with a brother-in-law of mine who had uh, hit the same age that Trudy has, which uh, begins with a six, ends with a zero. And Trudy mistyped and typed to my brother-in-law, welcome to the 69 Club. (laughs) 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 (sighs) Damn me. Oh, we left. Uh, that cause of confusion and some uh, ripples through the family, I can tell you. Um, another one from James. Given we didn't get a, a driver's parade at Le Mans this year, what's my favourite, most memorable driver's parade memory? Not a massive fan of the driver's parade, I have to say. My two abiding memories, though. One comes around, it's around a, a question we didn't answer earlier, which came around Roman Grosjean. Um, and I can't remember exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it, but there was some kind of setup we're doing with our photographers with every driver as they passed us, as people came back into what I think was then the Place du Jacobin. So this would have been about 2010, 2011. And every single driver on the grid played ball with this nonsense that we're up to, with the exception of Roman Grosjean, who was utterly dismissive. And I have to say that moment has defined my view of him. It's a bit strange, isn't it? It's this one moment defined my view of him. Would not come in for some jolly fan-based japery. Um, the only other one was uh, we did a bit of a charitable uh, thing. Um, one year, uh, Mr. McNish turned up with backing from a, it's a plumbing company called Graham's, oddly enough, and part of the activation was these so-called life-size cutouts of Alan in every branch. So we got in touch with Graham's and we managed to get some of these. And suffice to say, these were significantly larger than life-size Alan McNish. And uh, we had one of these cutouts at the... I remember. Yeah, you go. Every single driver, every single driver um, signed that. That went for charity... Um, and we did it. I think it was Highcroft Racing that year. So this would have been, what, 2009-ish? Nine or ten, something um, like that, yeah. Yeah. 
for their um, malaria charity. And bizarrely, I now realise I'm wearing that shirt right now. Wow. Um, and that went, went up for charity and raised thousands of dollars, I'm delighted to say. Uh, went to a private individual for part of a collection. Uh, but that was great fun. Uh, a really good day uh, with everybody playing ball. And that was a year where we had the likes of Nigel Mansell. It would have been 2009. Nigel Mansell, John Lacey was part of it as well. Uh, there were some cracking signatures on that uh, on that McNish, as we say. But yeah, there you go. You want to pick a couple? James, I can mention something that I've never shared before because it absolutely Ooh. has no meaning. <laughs> I covered 24 Hours of Le Mans for 10 years straight, did not go to a single driver's parade, uh, never gave a crap. <laughs> uh, I mean, nothing against whomever, but I don't give a shit about drivers sitting on the back of something, riding down a little alleyway and having beads thrown at them and whatever like it. If I had nothing else to do, I probably would have gone. The majority of the time, I think all but a handful of years, I was pretty much the only person there from my media outlet. So it was me doing reporting uh, and no one else. So the idea of like, hey, I'm going to sneak away and go. No, usually. And none of this is a complaint. I mean, I loved it. But Fridays at Le Mans were A maybe sleep in a tiny bit, but B, you've probably got a lot of crap to still get to, to yep. write and previews and other stuff. And it was always a work catch up day. Wouldn't especially in the last couple of years, I don't think I even went to the track. I think I just woke up at the hotel and would run out at some point in time and get some food. But other than that, just stayed in the hotel and worked the whole time. So that's extremely non-romantic, but yeah, uh, I don't know. Hell, I've covered the Indy 500, I don't know how many times, plus participated in, in it uh, on the team side many times, and I've never been to that parade as well. So you know yeah. what the takeaway is? Marshall Pruitt has some sort of beef with parades that I need to hire <laughs> a psychologist to get to the bottom of. So it's, a, it's me, right. not you, parades. It's a, a, it's a catch-up day Friday very often. It is difficult to explain how intense that week is. It really, really is. It's utterly, completely exhausting. Plus, I'll grab another one. I've got what? Eight or nine oh. hour time change difference as well. Uh, I know that, yeah, uh, definitely my butt was getting whooped by about uh, Friday there <laughs> in particular. Um, let's see. we got some other fun one here. I've got one quick one I want to get to when you've chosen one. Uh Nick Dovniak, you've been tasked with doing a cannonball run in a race spec GTE or GT3 car. Which model do you choose and which pet comes with mm -hmm. you? Well, I think that might be the easiest one to answer of all. That would be a BMW M8 GTE, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots of space. Lots yes. of space. I mean, if you're Ages going to space. do... Take all the animals with you. Coast to coast. You're going to want leg room. You're going to want to be able to stretch in your own car. Uh, what, I believe, uh, one of the specs uh, of the M8 GTE, uh, kind of like 
some of the old VW Vanigans and such, I believe the roof pops up into kind of a camper unit. So that's pretty awesome. Yep. Uh, beneath the car, I mean, it's hard to see, but you can if you reach beneath and you got to kind of push and then pull, uh, you can detach the uh, step ladders. That'll get you up to the uh, the expandable roof camper top on the the MHGTE. Oh, so yeah. yeah, so I'm just saying it's a bit like having. Uh, a transit van, uh, and yet it's a GTE spec vehicle just due to its sheer size. So the other thing as well, which I know this maybe isn't a full thing, but it is so quiet compared to the other GTE cars and GT3, that would only help in a stealthy cross-country run. So, oh yeah, for sure. As for pets, uh, it wouldn't be Rocky because he complains yeah well it might but rocky complains all the time about wanting to be fed and just he's just always grousing about something rosie she's mildly entertaining um she is constantly looking for attention and affection and or wanting to bite me and uh have her belly rubbed and then just meow a lot i think she'd actually be helpful because she would keep the entertainment high and or yeah. make sure there are lots of distractions so I didn't fall asleep. I can't say about Oscar just because I haven't spent time around. No, well, Oscar's a, Oscar is, how can you put this? He's a dumpster. Basically, he will eat anything in any quantity that gives any opportunity whatsoever. Just sighed loudly on his, his name. Uh, leaves the opportunity for two others. Uh, there's Tango, DSC Cat. No, she can be a bit of a serial complainer. She'd be no good. Which leaves um, the DSC cat stunt double, Bear, our other ginger and white cat. He'd be useful in that, I'm telling you right now, you would not get robbed in that car. He'd take your face off. That That is a cat with a dual personality. Personality number one, completely violent. Personality, personality number two, even more completely violent. Wow. Um, he, is he is he's a whirling dervish of violence that cat um he's um scythe through the wildlife within about three mile area uh, 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 you know diameter of, uh, of our home so uh yeah i'm not entirely sure he's not a lynx but um it's yeah can you get a ginger and white lynx maybe so but no i think you're right bmw and i think bear the cat there we go i mean very serious answers uh, why don't you make your question, Graham, the last? Let's do that. It comes from John Schultzer. Uh, it's a previous episode you spoke about Le Mans, which, uh, as in one word, L-E-M-A-N-S. Le Mans. Which others? Yeah, Le Mans. Which sports car-related or general racing names and terms are the most prone to being misspelled on a regular basis? His personal favourite is the English naturalised Nordschleife. I've got one, and I have to say, other than... Pointless capitalization of words in a press release, which I absolutely loathe. Damn you, Rebellion Racing. Um, the one that I absolutely hate, and it bristles every time, is Donington, D-O-N-N, which it fundamentally isn't and never was. Donington is D-O-N-I-N-G-T-O-N, and so many people misspell it, as Frank Beeler found out to his cost when he put the wrong thing into his sat-nav, having arrived, I think, at Birmingham Airport's, which is what forty-five minutes from uh, from Donington Park, and ended up in Devon, which is the other end of the country, uh, when he was turning up for a race meeting for British touring cars, I think, back in the mid nineties. Um, 
Donington Park. That's the one. Well, I <laughs> I don't have a better one to offer than that. I can only piggyback off of your rampant capitalization thing sweeping through our sport. Let me count how many letters here are capitalized in this press release for the team name. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Aim Vassar Sullivan. All capitalized. 17 letters. All caps. Really? So here's the fun part. And I realize that this was a very specific question from John um, about misspelling things. Well, I'll just say that the delight dropped in a number of inboxes this morning, Graham, on the opposite end of Petit Lamar being finished at the race to rack where it was sponsored by O'Toole. We have a press release from our friends at the all caps 17 letter aim Vassar Sullivan decrying number 14. This is in the headline of the email as well. Um, AVS finishes second in motel Petit Lamar. So apparently we are putting people to sleep. Motel. Uh, motel. Yes. And looking at a keyboard, the letter E and the letter U from O'Toole, there's a pretty pretty significant gap between the two. So might have been autocorrect, but yes. Um, AVS finishes second in Motel Petit Le Mans. So uh, I wonder how that reconciles with points because apparently uh, they, were, they were talking about Satnav. They were at some place other than Motul Petit Le Mans. Uh, so I guess we should ask why they finished second because as a professional team, they should have finished first in some sort of hotel parking lot race. <laughs> Good stuff. Are we done? Uh, I think, brother, we were done before we even started. But, yeah, we still persevered. Uh, yeah, that hour and a half episode that we're now past an hour and Bask 50. On. Yeah, so right. I say hello, up, you say goodbye. Well, let's do that. Um, thanks once again to all of you that sent in questions, including those of you we didn't get to. Please send them in again. We will get to them eventually. We promise, sort of. For now... I'm going to say thank you once again to the Justice Brothers. And by the way, fantastic moments at uh, Donington with One End Park uh, this week. Uh, I was out playing with some uh, historic race cars, including the 2003 Peterson White Lightning Porsche 911 GT3 RS, which had a Justice Brothers sticker, period, Justice Brothers sticker at the back. The only private sponsorship on that car, by the way. So the Justice Brothers, you're fabulous. Cooper Tires. Bell Helmets, Red Bell Racing Helmets USA and TorontoMotorsports.com I've been Graham Goodwin here in the UK he's been Marshall Pruitt there in the US this has been the Week in Sports Cars part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast series we will speak to you next week